What's up, Videolanders? I'm your host, Brad Hawkins. We are unplugged this morning, so you might hear just a little bit of background noise. We recorded this podcast at the local comic shop, but overall, I think this interview turned out great. Uh, before we get started, I want to remind everyone that you can find us on adventuresinvideoland.com or on our Facebook at Adventures in Videoland. I want to give a shout out real quick to my website editor, Matthew Wade. Um, a few weeks ago, I talked with him about his new book, The Burgeoning Heart of Bambi Bazooms, which was partly inspired by Roger Rabbit. So after talking with Matt, I decided to reach out to Gary K. Wolf. He wrote the novel Who Censored Roger Rabbit, which later became Who Framed Roger Rabbit. He's also the author of Killer Bull and Space Vulture, we talked about his novels, we talked about Who Framed Roger Rabbit, the possibility of a sequel, everything Toontown. Gary was a blast to talk with. Without further delay, here is my interview with Gary K. Wolf. Gary, let's start at the beginning. Your creativity started in the classroom. Tell us how and who influenced you at such an early age. Oh, sure. Um, uh, way back when, it was probably the second or third grade, I can't remember exactly, but uh, my teacher gave the class a picture to color. And the whole object of the exercise was to color the picture and stay inside the lines. And there was nobody better at staying inside the lines than I was. I, I was I was wonderful at staying inside the lines. So this picture was a typical kind of farm scene. It was a it was a farmhouse, uh, a barn, and a uh, a big field with a with a single cow standing out in the middle of the field. So I took my crayons and I colored the barn red, which was the color barns were, and I colored the farmhouse yellow because that was the color farmhouses were around where I grew up in Illinois. And then uh, I took a look at that cow all alone out there in the middle of that field. And my mother had always told me that when people were all alone, that they got sad and they got lonely and they got blue. And I went, well, you know, works for people, must work for cows. <laughs> so I colored the cow blue and I turned it in. Well, I got to tell you, I was, I was way inside the lines. I mean, I didn't go outside <laughs> the lines on anything. Next day, the teacher handed back all of the papers except mine. And she said, Gary, I want you to come up here in front of the class. And I went up in front of the class. She said, now turn and face the class. And I did. And she put the picture up over my head. And I thought, oh, boy, I, you know, I stayed inside the lines better than anybody. And she said to the class, she said, now, class, look at this stupid, stupid picture. Wow. She said, everybody knows that cows are brown, cows are black, cows are white. Sometimes cows are brown, black, and white altogether. <laughs> never, never, ever are cows blue. Gary, don't ever do that again. And she called my mother. And my mother had to go to school where the teacher told her, I think there's something wrong with Gary. Wow. I think that he might need some help. Uh, so that, that day, my, my mother and father called me into the living room. And they sat me down and they said to me, Gary, you know, my mother said, I had to go to school. Why did you color that cow blue? And I, I said, I said, it was, it was you really, because, you know, you told me people sound lonely, they get blue. I look at the cow, sound lonely, I colored the cow blue. So they said, Gary, you go outside and play in the yard for a while. Well, your father and I have to talk about this. Now, you got to know my parents, my mother. Uh, and father were both children of the Depression. My mother had to drop out of school 
in the eighth grade to go to work. My father had to drop out of school in the third grade to go to work. So these were not what we call today highly educated urban liberals. I mean, these were these were working class people who, um, you know, had basic basic values. And so after about 15, 20 minutes, they, my mother came, called me back in, sat me down and said, okay, she, Gary, your father and I discussed this and we decided that the next time you want to call her a cow blue, you go ahead and call her a cow blue. And so uh, that was the first validation that anybody ever gave me of it, my creativity. Um, it, and it, it's a lesson that has stayed with me for the rest of my life. The next time I got an, uh, an assignment from that same teacher, it was to describe what I did on my summer vacation. So I wrote a page <laughs> about how I built a rocket ship out of tin cans in my backyard and went to the moon. <laughs> wow, that's awesome. <laughs> my, my mother never had to go to school over that one, and <laughs> I still have that blue cow picture hanging over my desk. In fact, I'm sitting here looking at that it. That is right sweet. Now. Is that, uh, was the rocket blue? <laughs> uh, the, the, I, you know, I, I can't remember. The rocket, that was, that was, uh, that was my first foray into the written word, and uh, I don't remember what color the rocket was. I didn't save that. I should have, should have saved that and, sold it on eBay. I don't know. That is excellent. But the uh, so the encouragement of your parents and imagination gave the world Roger Rabbit. Uh yeah, eventually it did. Eventually it did. Now did you read a lot of novels or comics as a kid that triggered that imagination? Yeah. Uh, uh, once again I go back to my mother who was a very wise woman for uh you know, someone who only had eighth grade education. She was very wise and uh, my father in that town, I grew up in a little town called Earlville, Illinois, population 1,400. It was a farm town, uh, although I lived in town, not in the, uh, not on a farm. Uh, my father ran the pool hall there, and my mother worked in the uh, school cafeteria. And my mother told me, uh, she said, Gary, if, if you want to get out of this town, if you want to go on to do something better than running your father's pool hall when you when you grow up the one thing you can do to make that happen is to read and uh wise woman that she was she never put any restrictions on what i could read oh cool so what did i read i mean i read what kids read i read comic books and um uh i graduated from comic books to something that my father read um and they were graphic crime magazines. Uh, there, there's really no equivalent for them today that I know of in the magazine business. Um, I think maybe you can find that kind of stuff on uh, on TV. But um, these were magazines that showed crime scenes along with graphic pictures of uh, the crimes involved. Um, the pictures of dead bodies and murders and, you know, pictures of the aftermath of bank robberies. And, uh, and, and I read these. And, and again, my mother knew I was reading them, but never said, don't read them, that's trash, it'll rock your mind. So uh, luckily I graduated from those to uh, better better things like, um, oh, Dashiell Hammett, uh, Mickey Spillane, um, 
noir crime novels. And uh, from those um, came my, my love of, of hard-boiled private eyes. So um, in later years, when I was looking for uh, a novel to incorporate all the things I loved, the two things that I loved were cartoons, comic strips, and noir mysteries. So that's how Roger Rabbit was born. And I read an article about your love for a book called Space Hawk. So can you talk about how that book inspired you as a kid and how it led to Space Vulture? Oh, sure. Um, it's, uh, it's one of my non-Roger Rabbit. I, I, I work in two genres. I started out as a science fiction writer and um, wrote Roger Rabbit, which I consider to be kind of science fiction, but most people don't. Uh, but I still work in the science fiction, in the science fiction genre. And uh, again, going back to Earlville, I was in the, oh, probably seventh or eighth grade. And my best friend was a, was a young man named John Myers. His father was the town milkman and um, also a farmer. So uh, he, he and I would get up at four o'clock in the morning and help his father uh, deliver milk. And it was... Uh, one of the great joys of my life because John and I were best buddies and just a lot of fun. So uh, we were both big readers. I would read um, adventure stories, King Arthur, Robin Hood. John, even in the seventh and eighth grade, was reading uh, biographies, uh, higher levels, higher level stuff that I did. But we both loved science. We were both really science geeks. But one day John came to me and said, you know, I've got a novel here that I got at the library. It's called Space Hawk. And he said, it, it's, it's something I've never heard of. He said, it's science, but it's fiction. Science fiction. <laughs> and I said, you've got to read it. I said, he said, this is the best book I've ever read in my life. So I read John's recommendation, Space Hawk. And it was the best book I'd ever read. I, I had never read anything like this. So we went to the librarian and said, you know, can you get us more of this science fiction and she did she got us uh, the, you know the towering giant she got us asimov and heinlein and you know we were both hooked we, we were both hooked so um years later years later and i mean years later maybe 15 years ago um john and i were talking and john in, in the in the interim i mean i went on to do what i did create roger rabbit john uh, became a priest and uh, kind of worked his way up the ladder or, or was promoted up the ladder and eventually became the Archbishop of New Jersey. It was a kind of an oddball friendship, but we've stayed friends forever. And so one Christmas I decided to to get two copies of Space Hawk because we still talked about it. We, we could quote verbatim lines from Space Hawk uh, even after... Uh, what, I don't know, 40 years. We still talked about what a great, and how this, uh, uh, how this changed our lives. So, um, so John, um, John got the book. I, I bought two copies. I sent one to John as a Christmas present. John got the book. And I said, look, you know, let's read it. We'll read it together. And then we'll, you know, we'll talk about it. So we both read it. And, I finished it 
It's the worst damn book you've ever read in your life. I mean, it was <laughs> horrible, 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 horrible. So, so it didn't so, hold up after all those years. Oh man, I got to <laughs> tell you the the um, lead character, Spacehawk, was just this cardboard Yahoo. I mean, he wasn't even <laughs> as good as Buck Rogers. the 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 book was the book was semi racist. The the villain was a slant eyed, slanty eyed nip, and it is his best. Uh, his sidekick was like a step and fetch it guy, and it was it was horrible. The writing was this trite was was horrible. <laughs> and I I I called John and I said, "Did you read it?" And he said, "Yeah." And I said, "What'd you think?" And he said, "Well, it wasn't very good." <laughs> I, I said, "Yeah." I, you know, and, and what's amazing is that. Is a direct line from Spacehawk to Roger Rabbit. I mean, how how could that happen? And so one of us, we never, we still argue over over which, but one of us said, you know, we should rewrite it the way we remember it rather than the way it is. And uh, so we we thought that we could just change it, but we couldn't. It, it was it was too bad. So we had to basically write an entirely new novel. Uh, we did keep some of the character names. Uh, we kept some of the, um, some of the phrases that we remembered, like uh, Hawk Curse aimed a laser gun at uh, somebody and, and shot him right in the middle of the head and the air was smelled with a, with a tinge of burning flesh. I mean, how could you not use that? <laughs> yeah. uh, so we, we wrote the book, it was called Space Vulture, and it was remarkably successful. Um, the, um, um, the book was listed uh, as, uh, by the New York Times, who did a review of pulp science fiction novels. It was listed in the New York Times as one of the top 10 pulp science fiction novels of all time, up there with, with stuff by Isaac Asimov and and Heinlein, and uh, it became a science fiction uh, collectible. I, one of the one of the science fiction novels that you have to have in your science fiction collection. And uh, I think what was most what was most satisfying to the two of us, to me and to John, was that we got letters from two kinds of fans. We got letters from from people our age, mostly men. Uh, who were reading science fiction back then, uh, saying, I didn't think anybody would ever write a novel like this again. This is what I remember science fiction being. And then we got letters from their children uh, who either found the book in their father's library and read it or were given it by their fathers and wrote us and said, wow, this is really, really good. So we've turned on a whole new generation of pulp science fiction. That's that's amazing, and uh, I bet that was just an awesome, awesome experience to go back and just write something with your friend. Yeah, it really was. We had a we had a great time doing it. Um, John, of course, was in New Jersey. I was in Boston. We did a lot of it by phone. Uh, I would drive down to his place. He would sometimes drive up to Boston, and uh, it was just fun to reconnect. Um, there's uh, there's now some movie interest in it, and I I hope it gets done. That's awesome. So can we pick up Space Vulture on Amazon? 
uh, on your website? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can actually go to uh, Amazon, Amazon.com, or you can go to my website, www.garywolf.com. So how hard is it to find the inspiration if we want to read Spacehawk right along with Space Vulture? Uh, I would skip Spacehawk. <laughs> People have asked me that before. <laughs> it's a terrible, terrible novel. But if, if you're really, really interested in it, yeah, you can, you can Google it and you can see that Spacehawk uh, has been published online. Uh, you can get it for free and read it uh i don't recommend it but just skip it and go straight to space vulture i would yeah (laughs) okay much better novel so from blue cows and coloring books to space hawk to space vulture to roger rabbit i mean how did you get the idea for tunes coexisting with humans well uh, as i said i wanted to do a novel that incorporated my favorite things and i had uh i had a contract with doubleday uh, Doubleday would uh, Doubleday printed my first novel. I never had a reject. I, I wrote short stories for a long time, science fiction short stories. I wrote novels for a long time. I never had a reject. And my first novel was published by Doubleday. It's called uh, Killer Bowl, and um, they loved it so much that they gave me a contract for a second novel. Just write whatever you want. We'll print it. So. Uh, I wrote A Generation Removed, and um, they liked that one so much, they gave me a contract for a third one, and they just write whatever you want, we'll print it. So I wrote The Resurrectionist, and um, they liked that one so much, they gave me a contract for a fourth one. Write whatever you want, we'll print it. So by that time, I, I really wanted to push the envelope. I really wanted to write things that had never been write, written before that, that nobody ever thought of before so I, I wanted to incorporate my two favorite things from when I was a kid which were noir novels and comic strips and cartoon characters so I was I was looking for a way to do that looking for a premise and I was I was watching Saturday morning cartoons one Saturday morning you know, like, purely for research I told my wife purely for research I'm researching my next novel um, and I, I became fascinated not by the cartoons themselves but by the commercials because I, I would see Captain Crunch the Tricks Rabbit Snap Crackle and Pop uh, Tony the Tiger cartoon characters talking to real kids and nobody thought that was odd and I, I it, it it's a light bulb went on over my head. It, it, a tune town light bulb went on over my head. I said, what an interesting premise for a novel. What would you have if you had a world where cartoon characters were real? What kind of a world would that be? So um, I, I spent a year researching cartoons and comic strips and uh, just thinking about the kinds of things that a cartoon character does that a human doesn't and how that would work in a real human world. And then I added Eddie Valiant as the prototypical Los Angeles, L.A. private eye, came up with a story that would work only in Toontown and uh, and wrote the book. 
That's awesome. And it was such an innovative concept. Um, did you get any rejections on Roger Rabbit? How many rejections did you get on that in the early oh, 80s? Oh, I did. I did, yeah. Um, just, uh, you know, one more one more comment on how Toontown differs from, from life in real life. Um, if, uh, if you're in Toontown, you go into a bar. You know, you can go into a human bar, you can go into a toon bar. Well, if you're a human and you go into a toon bar, what do you drink? Well, you drink toon shine, right? Yeah. <laughs> if you're a, a toon and go into a human bar, what do you drink? Well, first of all, toons aren't allowed in human bars, but if they do sneak in and have a drink, I mean, I think we all saw what happens to them from, uh, from the movie. They go yeah. a little, a little wacky. Um, if you're in Toontown and you're shot by a toon gun, the gun produces a bang balloon, and uh, the balloon... Uh, becomes brittle and lands on the ground and you can pick up the balloon and analyze it and determine what the caliber of the tune gun was that uh, that was used and if you find the gun you can match that bang balloon to the bang balloon you have and you got the killer. Uh, if somebody plays a piano in Toontown the, the notes come out as, as real notes and you can collect those that string of notes and cut them into 8 by 12 sheets and that's where sheet music comes from. You know, I had to think about all of that stuff because I had my rules of the world and I could not deviate from the rules of the world or, or my readers would would uh, lose their belief. I, I did not want to cause disbelief, so I had to make everything consistent. So I spent a lot of time on stuff like that. And I, you know, I produced the novel, the uh, best novel I've ever written, maybe the best novel I ever will write, um, Maybe best novel anybody's ever written, um, and I sent it to Doubleday. And of course, this was the fourth novel in my contract, and um, I, you know, I expected that they would publish it and give me a contract for a fifth. But first time in my writing career, I got a reject on Roger Rabbit. Wow! So, so I called my editor Sharon and I said, Sharon, what? You know, why did you reject this? This is this is the best thing I've ever written. And she said, Oh, I agree. She said. It's, it's clever, it's funny, she said, there's never been anything written like this before. But it's so different that I I had to show it to the marketing department. And it was the marketing department who rejected it. So I called the head of the marketing department and said, hey, Charlie, you know what? Why did you reject this novel? And he said, oh, well, he said, I think it's really clever, but there's no category for it on a bookstore shelf. I <laughs> yeah. can't sell this novel. I cannot sell this. And he said, it's not regular fiction, it's not a children's book, it's not a mystery, uh, it, it, it's it's not a fantasy novel, it, there's just no category for it. And I said, okay, Charlie, let me ask you, what would you do if you got The Wizard of Oz, or Alice in Wonderland, or Gulliver's Travels, what would you do if you got those today? Yeah. And he thought for a minute, and he said, I couldn't sell those either. Double Day rejected it. Uh, so I went to my agent, I said, Bill, you know, what am I going to do here now? Now my agent had had a pretty easy road all this all this time. I mean he he was getting fifteen percent on stuff that he really didn't have to do anything for because it was all automatic. I would write a novel, send it a double day, and they would publish it. And uh, he said, "Oh, don't worry about it." He said, "We we will we will get this published." And so he started sending it out to other editors at uh, other publishers. Sometimes he would send it out to multiple editors at the same publisher. 
because they had different interests and, and different uh, different outlooks. Uh, and it, it just kept getting rejected, always for the same reason. The editors loved it, but the marketing department said, nah, no, can't do this, can't sell this. So along the way, it got 110 rejects, 110. Um, in those days, this was before email or electronic uh, communications and the rejects would come in in the form of uh, physical rejects in the mail. And my wife took to calling my trip to the mailbox every morning the daily disappointments because I would go out and there would be sometimes two and three rejects on my Roger Rabbit novel. Um, so finally, the book landed on the desk of uh, Rebecca St. Martin, or Rebecca Martin at St. Martin's Press. She was, Rebecca Martin was no relation to St. Martin, but uh, she was an editor there and had just edited a major bestseller for them. And she had just edited a major bestseller for them. And um, so the president of the company, the president of the publishing company, gave her a vanity project. He said, look, whatever you want to publish next, you can publish, you know, your choice, whatever. And at just at that time, Roger Rabbit came across her desk. So she read it. She loved it like all editors did before. So she bypassed the marketing department, went right to the president of the company and said, here's what I want to publish next. It's Roger Rabbit book. So he said, okay, let me read it. So he read it that night got back to her the next day and said, you know, Rebecca, I told you you could publish whatever you want, but you can't publish this because <laughs> oh, wow. I, can't, I can't sell it. <laughs> and Rebecca, God bless her, stepped up to the plate and said, look, either publish it or I quit. Wow. And so they published it, albeit in very small quantities, I think less than 5,000 quantities, uh, 5,000 copies. And I think the, the price on it was two ninety five dollars uh, back then. And if I had my life to do over again, if I could go back and tell my younger self, hey, you know, here's something you should think about. What I would tell my younger self is to buy all of those copies at 295 because that hardback edition now on eBay goes for around 350 bucks. Wow. So, um, but yeah, it was, it was published and, uh, uh, you know, went on to become a cult classic. Yeah. Do you think it would still be difficult to get published today? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. In fact, um, I think that the publishing industry today is kind of better uh, in some respects and worse. I think that the major publishers are all looking for the big bestsellers by the same authors over and over again. And uh, there still is no category for a Roger Rabbit. Yeah. Uh, the good part of it is that now you have a lot of self-publishing. Uh, you, you really don't need publishers, although with self-publishing, you're faced with the problem of advertising, uh, advertising your book. Um, but I, I think Roger Rabbit would still be a tough sell today. Yeah. So after a small publisher took a chance on your novel, it was later adapted into Who Framed Roger Rabbit. So take us back to your first meetings with Disney and Spielberg. What was that experience like for you? Well, um, my first meeting with Disney was actually a phone call. And um, this came in um, 1980. 
the book, I sold the book in 1980, but it actually wasn't published until 81. And so the book hadn't actually been published yet when I got a phone call. And, you know, I pick it up and, and the voice on the other end says, this is Gary Wolf. I said, yes, it is. He says, hi, this is Roy Disney. I said, yeah, right, Roy Disney. <laughs> yeah, who is this really? Said, no, 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 this is really Roy Disney. And I'm wondering if you would be interested in selling us the rights to your book because Disney would like to make a movie of it. Yeah, right. Who is this really? The book hasn't come out yet. I, you know, how do you know? How would you know about my book? Well, it turned out that somebody at St. Martin's, uh, I never found out who, and I, I tried desperately because I wanted to kiss him or her full on the lips. Uh, somebody at uh, St. Martin's had sent Disney a copy of the galleys. And, you know, saying, hey, we, I think you might be interested in this. And sure enough, it, the, the galley copy worked its way up to Roy Disney. And he read it and said, yeah, we're, we're interested in this. Uh, and, and the reason was uh, pretty obvious when you look back on it. Disney in 1980, 1981, uh, was really a second-rate movie production company. They were making things like Flubber and... Uh, uh, you know, the, the, a ton of stuff that was intended to be um, the second half of a double feature. And there were no more double features, so th their, their stuff was was not going anywhere. Uh, they had been offered E.T., they turned it down. They had been offered Star Wars, they turned it down. Um, they needed something that would catapult them back into the top ranks of movie production houses. And Roy Disney saw Roger Rabbit as being that that project. Uh, the other the other reason was that they they had a stable of characters. They had Mickey, Donald, Goofy. Uh, and if you if you've ever been to Disneyland you might you might notice that Disney makes a tremendous amount of money selling merchandise with their characters on it. Uh, those characters were getting a little stale and they wanted some new characters to give them more merchandise and, and um, you know, more inroads into that arena. And they saw Roger, Jessica, Baby Herman as being those characters. Um, I, you know, obviously I said, yeah, I mean, it's my lifelong dream to have Disney do a movie of, of my novel, but, uh, and then they, they offered me more money for it than I'd ever made for everything I'd written put together. So I said, nice. yeah, sure, go ahead. But I really did not believe that Disney had the, uh, had the clout, had the expertise. I just didn't believe that Disney had the clout or the expertise to, um, to do this movie the way I thought it should be done. Um, and for the longest time, they, they proved me right. In 1980, 81, 82, 83, they really didn't. Uh, they they threw a lot of producers at it. They tried a lot of different approaches. None of them worked. Finally, they uh, they came to me and said, you know, we're thinking, since we, since we don't seem to be able to do this as a live-action animated movie, how about if we do it with the Toon characters uh, dressed, in costumes like they are at Disneyland. I thought to myself, oh my God, I'm going to wind up with Fred McMurray as Eddie Valiant. Oh, man. Um, 
uh, Haley Mills as Jessica, uh, Dean Jones as the rabbit, and Kurt Russell as Baby Herman. And <laughs> I, I said, you know, doesn't that compromise the, the, the concept just a little bit? And, you know, cooler heads prevailed, and they said, yeah, sure, I guess you're right. So they went off and, you know, kept failing on trying to get it produced. Well, <clears throat> finally, in 19... 1984, 85, uh, Roy Disney got uh, shunted into the background and Michael Eisner came on board. Uh, Michael Eisner brought with him Jeff Katzenberg, uh, with whom he'd worked at 20th Century Fox, and uh, they had produced a string of you know, very successful movies. The first thing that happens when a new production team comes on board, or new leadership comes on board in a studio, is they cancel all the projects they have going because that's what got the previous leadership into trouble. And they bring in their own projects. Well, they did, did Eisner and Katzenberg did that with one exception. They, they kept Roger Rabbit. That was the only project they kept because they knew they had to make that movie. Uh, and they did something that nobody at Disney had ever done before. They went outside for a producer and they brought in a, a guy, you may have heard of him, I don't know, Steve Spielberg. Hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, he came in, uh, Steve came in, the first decision he made, and he had read the book when it came out, and always thought it would be a great movie. Um, he uh, brought in Bob Zemeckis, uh, who had been offered the project back in 1980, 81, uh, but didn't think that Disney had the clout to make it happen the way he saw it happening. So he went on to direct some, you know, little known stuff like uh, Back to the Future and Forrest Gump and, you know, a bunch of other movies you've never heard of. Um, <laughs> so when Stephen came on, Stephen assured him that things would be done the way they should be done. And to show you what a difference it makes in Hollywood when Steven Spielberg is behind your project. In 1981, Roy Disney went to Warner Brothers <coughs> and said, hey, look, we're doing this live-action animated movie with, uh, you know, our Disney characters and some new characters, and we'd like Bugs Bunny to do a cameo. And we'd like him to walk on screen and say, what's up, Doc? And, you know, walk off. He'd be on screen for 10 seconds. And Warner Brothers said, get lost. Don't get lost. There's no way that Bugs Bunny is ever going to be in a Walt Disney picture. Get lost. So five years later, Steve Spielberg walks into Warner Brothers, makes the identical request, and Warner Brothers said, of course. Of course you can have Bugs. But, you know, what about Porky Pig? Don't you want him too? And what about Wiley Coyote and the Roadrunner? And how about Yosemite Sam and Tweety Bird and Sylvester? You know, take them all. Take them all. So... Stephen walked out with all the Warner Brothers characters, and <laughs> nice. uh, the only the only restriction was Bugs being a superstar and an agent, of course, and his contract. Bugs's contract specified that Bugs had to be in every scene with Mickey. You could not have Mickey on screen without Bugs because they were co-equal superstars. Interesting, and they also had to have the same exact number of words of dialogue. Wow. So you can go count them up. Um, and, you know, you know, from there, uh, 
the movie just never looked back. It just kept going and kept getting better. What were they like as collaborators? I mean, were they open to other suggestions? How did that creative process work with you? Um, what was what were who uh, who was collaborators with uh, Disney, Warner? Spielberg, Zemeckis, uh, whoever? Oh, oh, oh! Uh, they valued my creativity. Um, you have to realize that I wrote this to be the best book that I knew how to write, and um, they were making what they wanted to make as the best movie that they were capable of making, and the two mediums are different. Uh, the book the book reader relies on imagination the movie the movie viewer uh, is all right there on the screen in front of you so there are certain certain things that you know have to change from book to movie uh, have to like in the book my characters speak in word balloons they don't actually talk because they're comic strip and uh, and, and uh, uh, car and comic book characters, so they speak in word balloons. So you ha- you have to read a cartoon car- uh, 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 one of my characters, and if he turns around, his word balloon turns around, and so you have to either learn to read backwards or you know turn around with him. Uh, that's a clever concept, and it's great for a book, and it's you know it's great for making readers use their imagination, but. Don't work at all on a movie because, uh, and they tried. They tried using the word balloons early on, but they found it became a silent movie. Word balloon goes up, action stops while the audience reads the word balloon, and then the movie goes on. So, you know that changed. The story in the book was a a story directly involving Toontown and the world that I had created, and that story just didn't translate to. To the movie, so the story had to change. But um, the the thing that they kept, and, and that uh, you know, I'm most pleased about, is they kept the whole concept of cartoon characters living in a real world, and they kept my characters: Roger Rabbit, Jessica Rabbit, Baby Herman, Eddie Malian. Those are all my characters. Um, and yeah, you know, they valued my creativity and. There were times when I would find myself in a room with 35 of the most creative people I've ever met in my life, and they're all throwing out ideas on how to make my book better. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, where where were you 35 people (laughs) when I was writing this at four in the morning at my (laughs) breakfast table? You know, I would have had a Pulitzer Prize winner. Hell yeah. And um, so, uh, you know, these people were much better at, doing movies than I was and so you know I went to the I went to the filming um, I I met all the I I met all the actors uh, I hung around a lot with the animators that was a lot of fun Um, most of the stuff that made it into the movie was stuff that came from my book Uh, so yeah it was kind of a collaboration but it was more of a collaboration between movie and book than between me and, you know, Spielberg. So overall, would you say that you're happy with the way your book was translated to the screen? No, I'm more than happy. I'm I'm (laughs) overjoyed. I I really didn't think that this was a filmable book. I did not think, uh, I didn't think they could make a a movie out of this novel, but they, 
they surpassed my wildest expectations. Yeah. I mean, everything. Yeah, looking at the facts, you know, looking at the facts, it became the most critically acclaimed and highest grossing film of 1988, and it brought home four Academy Awards. I mean, did you ever think you'd go from that classroom talking about blue cows and coloring books to the Academy Awards? I didn't, and I, I went to that Academy Awards ceremony uh, where I sat close enough to share and smell a perfume, and I, I'm thinking to myself, you know, this is... This is just beyond my wildest dreams. Uh, I'll tell you, when the movie premiered, I had never seen the entire movie all the way through because they were they were still working on it uh, a couple of days before it actually uh, it actually opened. Uh, I had never seen my credit on screen because they, they hadn't inserted it yet. So... I was at the premiere. I was going to see my movie all the way through for the first time. I was going to see my credit on screen for the first time. And I was sitting up in the uh, first balcony with all the VIPs. And uh, on one side of me was Kathleen Turner, my, my fantasy girl, who was the voice of Roger Rabbit. And on the other side was Amy Irving, who was Stephen's wife at the time, who was my second fantasy girl, who was the singing voice of Jessica Rabbit. So here I am sitting in the balcony with my two fantasy girls on the other side, getting ready to see my movie, see my credit for the first time, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, life doesn't get any better than this. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and then, by golly, life got better because Kathleen reached over and put her hand on my leg and leaned over and whispered to me, Gary, are you excited? <laughs> <laughs> Kathleen, you have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So, you know, Roger Rabbit was so successful. Was there any talks to do a sequel? Oh, sure. Um, yeah, sure. They they started doing this the sequel uh, a couple of years after, maybe a year or so after the original came out. The, the original movie has grossed, uh, I think, my latest, uh, my latest accounting, I don't know, a billion dollars. <laughs> that, that's you know that's not small simoleons. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. The the sequel was uh, was in the works a couple of years after, uh, but politics intervened. Um, uh, Jeff Katzenberg, who really was the champion of this movie at Disney, left. Uh, he, he got the uh, he got into a um, kind of a corporate uh, infight with Michael Eisner. He left went into partnership with Steve Spielberg under uh, as uh, SKG, whatever it is, and um, you know vowed he would never make another another dollar for Disney. And because Steven kind of controlled the production rights to Roger Rabbit, um, he you know he, he probably pressured. Stephen into you know not uh, not doing the sequel movie I don't know, but it just never got done. They had a script, they were going to do it. Uh, then Stephen uh, vetoed the script, uh, just kind of fell by the wayside, and uh, then the whole Pixar thing came about, and the Pixar guys took over at Disney. Um, they. Uh, the Pixar guys wanted to do CGI animation and they wanted to use their Pixar characters. So they really had no, uh, 
no interest in doing they had no interest in doing anything with the classic Disney characters, including Mickey Mouse. So um the Roger the Roger sequel just kinda of fell off the charts. Uh, but then in later years, um Steve Spielberg kinda of came back to Disney and uh had a had a bungalow on the Disney lot and Bob Zemeckis uh who had left Disney, and uh, he came back. Uh, Kathleen Turner, and, I mean, uh, uh, Kathleen Kennedy and, and Frank Marshall, who were the producers, came back, and they they were asked what what would be their project, Disney, and they said, oh, we want to do the Roger Rabbit sequel. Uh, Don Hahn, who had been the line producer, uh, came back to Disney, and they were all there, and they were all eager to do the Roger Rabbit sequel. Um, but it, it just <laughs> never generated any traction. And uh, so, I, you know, I, I don't know. I, uh, I don't know what will happen with it. Do you think that the current Disney culture would have any interest in reviving Roger Rabbit? Just it might be too risque for, you know, their brand nowadays. Could be. Yeah, could be. Um, I do know that there's a tremendous market for the Roger Rabbit sequel. I mean, I... I I'm on Facebook and I get all kinds of queries on Facebook. Will there be a Roger Rabbit sequel? You know, we'd really like to see this. And um, my my touchstone is that the people who saw it when it came out in 1988, my my fan base is now the, the people who saw it in 88, plus their children, plus now even some of their children. And I have a whole new audience of people who love that movie and would love to see a sequel yeah so uh whether disney would do it or not i don't know yeah and you wrote two other books titled who plugged roger rabbit and who whacked pa, pa, roger pa, 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 plug you gotta do the four yeah, p stutter p we, plugged we, 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 <laughs> yeah we standardized on the four p stutter uh, and, and also yeah, who and, and, and who whacked roger Rabbit? yeah which uh, both are great who, titles man i really love those titles well, who p -p -p plugged Roger Rabbit? Uh, I wrote after the movie came out. I, I really had no intention of writing a sequel, but the movie was so successful that you know publishers plied me with money as publishers are wont to do, and um, so I wrote it. Uh, I had a problem because the novel is considerably different from the movie uh, in tone, and, and uh, it's it's more adult uh, and. Uh, it's not it's not Disney. Uh, so for the sequel, I had to decide because uh, I think at the last accounting, maybe a hundred million people have seen the movie, and probably thirty two people have read the book. And of those thirty two, uh, twelve of them are my aunts and my mother. Uh, so I had to decide whether to stay true to the concept of the novel or go with. The, the way the movie presented the characters. And I did kind of a hybrid. Uh, I did um, kind of the best of both. I, uh, the, the plugged novel is much more adult-oriented than the movie was. I used the word balloons because I love those, although the characters can now also talk. They have a choice of doing either. And um, it, it was it was successful. It it, uh, it sold well and uh, very well received. Disney actually bought the rights to it for the second movie, and they, they owned the rights to that. Uh, years years later, 
years later. I, w- I had written another novel on the Lake Great Show, and uh, my publisher was looking for ways to promote it. And she said to me, you know, we let's do a blog, and every day you'll put something on the blog that'll get readers to the blog, and you'll promote your book. And I said, what do you have to do that? And I said, well, I've got in my files, I've got a got a third Roger Rabbit novel that I never published, mm-hmm. and you know, how about if I, you know, maybe do a page of that a day? And she said, you've got a third Roger Rabbit novel you've never published? I said, yeah. And she said, well, let's publish that. So that novel, actually, I started writing um, between the first novel and the second novel and then finished it years later. So the tone of it uh, is more consistent with the first novel. And if I had to rank them, I would say Who Censored Roger Rabbit is the best novel ever written. Uh, who whacked Roger Rabbit is a pretty close second, and uh, who p- p- flogged Roger Rabbit is third. I, uh, um, I, I think they're all, you know, all co-equal, and uh, they tell the story of Toontown. I kind of play fast and loose with the rules of Toontown because I am the almighty grand potentate of Toontown, and I can do whatever <laughs> the hell I want. <laughs> Uh, so in Plugged, Plugged ends up with uh, Roger and uh, Jessica having a baby who looks oddly like baby Herman, uh, hmm. as most babies probably do, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Um, and uh, that baby disappears in the uh, in the third novel. Um, and, uh, you know, other things change from from novel to novel, but the, the whole thing is consistency. It's all Toontown. It's all tunes living in a real world. Uh, I bring in some actual real-life characters in Plugged and in Whacked. In Plugged, it's Clark Gable uh, and the whole cast of uh, Gone with the Wind. That's awesome. And in uh, Whacked, it's Gary Cooper and a lot of uh, a lot of people from the High Noon era. That's awesome. Which movie? Which book do you think would make a better movie? Uh, who Whacked Roger Rabbit? No question. Yeah. Do you want to see one of these on the big screen? Uh, yeah, I think I would. Um, I, I, I would like to see it on the big screen if it can be done the way I think it should be done. If it's if it's Space Jam, nah, forget it. Uh, if it's Cool World, nah, forget it. But if it is of the quality of Who Framed Roger Rabbit, with the same attention to detail, the same craftsmanship, the same humor, yeah, I'd love to see it. Look at how many how many Marvel movies can you can you watch? I mean, <laughs> right. Yeah. No, I think it would be really I think it would be really really fun and really interesting. Now, were you a fan of the shorts like Tummy Trouble, Trail Mix oh. Up, and <laughs> Roller Coaster <laughs> yeah. Rabbit? Oh, I love those. I love those. I, I think that those uh, of the three, Roller Coaster, I think is one of the finest cartoons ever made. I think it holds its own with anything that Chuck Jones or um, any of the animators, uh, any of the animators did back in, uh, back in the 30s, 40s, 50s. It's just a phenomenal cartoon. <clears throat> now, do you plan on writing any Roger Rabbit novels in the future? Any new adventures for Roger coming up? You know, never say never. I, I don't know. Um, 
I'm not the world's fastest writer, and uh, I've written a number of novels since Who Whacked. Um, I'm writing one now that is as unique in its own concept as Roger was. Um, and I'm envisioning that it's going to take me another year, maybe two, to finish. So whether I, I do a Roger novel, I, I, I can't answer that. I don't know. And I do want to take a few minutes and talk about one of your earlier books, you're you're known as the guy who wrote Killer Bull, which I think oh, sounds man. awesome. I think Killer Bull sounds amazing. Tell our listeners oh, about Killer Bull. Killer Bull, uh, Killer Bull was my first novel, and uh, very close to my heart. And when I go to a science fiction conference, as opposed to a you know a Disney show or a, a Disneyland signing or something like that, when I go to a science fiction conference, I am known as the guy that wrote Killer Bull. I'm not known as the guy that created Roger Rabbit. Uh, Killer Bowl is a story. I wrote it in 1976, and it is a story of a world where uh, every Sunday for 24 hours, football teams have football games on the street. It's called street football, and it's played with uh, weapons, knives, clubs, and uh, a rifle with only one bullet, uh, and it's 24 hours, and it's a blood sport. If you're killed, uh, you're killed in the game, and uh, you can't be replaced. If you're injured, uh, you either keep keep playing, or, uh, or you, you know you you can be killed then. Uh, in a way, Killable. I said Killable in 2010, 2011. This was back in 1976, and in a way, Killable predicted a lot of things that actually happened. It predicted the. Uh, gas crisis, uh, I have cell phones, I have the internet. Um, Killable predicted, uh, in, in a way, mixed martial arts and cage, uh, cage fights. Um, you know, it's interesting, too. It kind of sounds like the sports version of Purge, but your book was way before Purge ever came out. Yeah, yeah. I uh, uh, Killable, for as successful as it's been, Killable, the timing on it was terrible. I... Uh, I wrote it, and again, because of the lag time of uh, publication, between the time I, I sent it to Doubleday and the time they printed it, uh, a short story came out in Esquire called Rollerball. And Rollerball became a movie that hit just as Killer Bowl came out. And I, even though I had written Killer Bowl before the short story ever appeared in Esquire, I got dinged for, you know, ripping off Rollerball. Mm. You know, Rollerball, Killerball was far superior to Rollerball. Uh, I had a, a serialization deal with Playboy, and um, that got canceled because, uh, well, you know, it's just a rip-off of Rollerball. So, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the, the Rollerball sequel came and went uh, just about the time that uh, we were talking about making a Killer Bowl movie, um, and now there's renewed interest in kind of mixed martial arts and Killer Bowl, and um, I am now getting ready to do it as a comic book. It's going to be a graphic novel. Oh, nice. Uh, there's a company in England that is making uh, Killer Bowl lead figures, and it will be a table game, 
And uh, I've written a script for it called Street Lethal that uh, sets it forward to 2051, 2052. And uh, producers are shopping that around as a feature film. Nice. When will we be able to get our hands on the comic? I, I'm open in my lifetime. I, I'm barely aware of how long it takes to make a movie. I mean, it takes 10 years to make a movie. I have no idea how long it takes to make a comic book. They, they've done the cover and the, like the first five pages. Uh, I have no idea. Well, that sounds no awesome, idea. man. I'm looking forward to that. Can we pick up Killer Bull on your website as well then? Before we end this interview, I just want to say that uh, I just love how a simple philosophy of just believing in an idea and seeing it through, how that paid off for you. It's just a great message for people that are just, you know, scared to be different and just try new things. It's just a very inspiring story. Well, you know, I, I once heard a, I, I once pitched a movie to a, to a studio executive and he looked at it and he says, you know, we can't do this because it's never been done before. And I was like, well, yeah. Um, I, I j- just just today, actually, I, I if people want to friend me on Facebook, I'm I'm Gary K Wolf, Gary Period K Period Wolf, and you can friend me on Facebook and find a lot of my daily musings. But my daily musing from yesterday, some some fan published 250 different artistic representations of Jessica Rabbit. Hmm. And this was from 250 different artists. Um, I have I have seen tattoos of Jessica Rabbit on 300 <laughs> different people <laughs> in all uh, in all shapes and sizes and in all parts of the body. Uh, I, and I look at my characters. I look at Roger and Jessica and I'm amazed that something that I created for my own amusement in my in my kitchen, working from four in the morning until seven when I had to go to work, has, has become a cultural icon. That's awesome. And, and you know, will far outlive me. Uh, and on my tombstone, we'll say Gary K. Wolf. He created Roger and Jessica Rabbit and Toontown, and that'll be enough. That's you know, that is awesome. Do you have any parting advice for, for anyone who's out there creating or, you know, writing their first book? Well, I, I, I gotta say, just believe in yourself, do the best possible writing that you're capable of doing and everything will work out. Never give up. Never give up. Is there anything that I haven't brought up that you want our listeners to know about? Um, well, uh, anything you want to plug? You know, that's, a, that's a journalistic. That's a journalistic question. I majored in journalism, and um, I'm guessing that uh, I'll tell you a story about that. Um, when the movie came out, my cousin, who was a third grade teacher in Illinois, asked me if I would come to to her school the next time I was visiting my folks in Illinois and address her class. So I did. You know, third grade. And afterwards, one of her third graders came to me and said he wanted to interview me for the third grade newsletter, which was a mimeograph newsletter. You probably don't even know what a mimeograph is anymore. Uh-uh. <laughs> uh, 
yeah, it, it, it predated uh, predated uh, Xerox. Anyway, he wanted to interview me, so he, he asked me asked me these questions, and at the end, uh, I I told him, I said, you know, if you want to be a journalist, you should end every interview by saying, now, is there something that you can tell me that you've never told anybody else? So the the kid said, oh, that's good. He says, well, is there something you can tell me that you've never told anybody else? So I had to tell him something, right? (laughs) So I told him the story about how during the filming of the movie, Steve Spielberg came to me and said, you know, I read your book when it came out and I don't have it anymore. I'd really like an autograph for submission. And of course, you don't say no to Steven Spielberg. Well, when the book came out, uh, St. Martin sent me 40 copies. And I mean, it was my first novel. It was, it was, it was uh, not my first novel, but it was my favorite novel. And uh, it was the first time that people had ever actually written me letters about my novel. And people would write me letters saying, you know, I read this novel and I just loved it. And every time somebody wrote me a letter, I would take one of those 40 copies and autograph it and send it to him. And pretty soon I had no copies of my own novel left. Not one. I didn't have one copy. So when Steven Spielberg came to me and said, hey, I'd like a copy of your novel, I had to go to a, uh, um, rare and used, a rare and antique book dealer <laughs> and buy a copy of my own novel for 300 bucks. Oh, wow. So that, I, so that I could sign it and give it to Steve Spielberg. Well, I never wanted Steve Spielberg to know that I had given him a used book, so that was a story I told told this young man. And so he printed it in his school newsletter, and it was adorable. And what I didn't know was that his father was a stringer for the Associated Press, for the AP. He saw that newsletter, and he put that story on the AP wire. And every newspaper in the country picked it up. Ran <laughs> it, was a little, it was a little blurb. So my secret was out. But what was gratifying to me was that of those 40 copies that I sent out, 38 of those people read that story and sent the novel back. They said, you know, you should not be without a copy of your own novel. That is awesome. Yeah. That is awesome. Well, before... So that's my, guilt, that's my guilty secret. It's my only guilty secret. Well, that's awesome. Before we end this interview, can you tell me something that you've never told anybody else? <laughs> <laughs> Jeez, <laughs> uh, uh, I you know I think I'm I think I'm fresh out of things. I think I've told everybody everything about my life. I don't think there's I don't think there's anything in my life that is a closed uh, is, is a closed door. So I, I'm going to have to pass on that one. I'm sorry. All right. Well, if you think of something, just message me later. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. Well, Gary, thank you for taking time out of your day. Where can Video Land find you? Uh, well, I'm on uh, www.garywolf.com. Uh, that's my website. You can uh, you can go to Amazon.com, uh, put my name in, and my books will pop up. And I do a lot of stuff on Facebook. So if you want to friend me on Facebook, uh, do that, and um, you can you can watch. Watch and listen to my daily musings. Awesome. And our listeners can find us on adventuresinvideoland.com. We're on Facebook. We're all over the place. So until next time, my good people, that's all, folks. (laughs) 